Welcome to episode number 30 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, a 1,600-kilometer wave flight over the Canadian Rockies at a blistering average speed of 140 knots. We talk to Arcus pilot Chester Fitchett. We also hear from the air traffic controller and glider pilot who helped facilitate this flight through controlled airspace. And the story behind a lovingly restored Robin glider from the 1930s. We talked to glider pilot and restorer Doug Fronius. And last but not least, a very moving poem about the big, inevitable final glide that all of us glider pilots will all eventually face. That and a whole lot more on episode number 30 of The Thermal. Canadian glider pilot Chester Fitchett has been at it again, smashing records in the Canadian Rockies. On October 16, 2021, Chester flew 1,600 kilometres at an average speed of 179 kilometres an hour in his Arcus M. Canadian Air Traffic Control also played a crucial role by clearing Chester through high-level controlled airspace just west of Calgary. It was the best flight in the world that day and the best in Canada ever. As of the end of 2021, it's still the best flight on OLC. I've reached Chester at his home in Calgary, Alberta. Chester, welcome back to the podcast. Congratulations on another spectacular flight. Yes, that was uh, that, that was quite an amazing flight. My previous longest flight had been I'm just shy of 1,300 kilometers. And you know, to me, what was exceptional about that flight is that I didn't I didn't see it coming at all. You know, I didn't even I was trying to talk myself out of going flying that morning. Really? And, you know, normally normally I'm up at five o'clock in the morning and checking everything, and you know I'll be launched by by seven thirty, and, and I was really dragging that particular morning. So set the flight up for me. What what were the conditions like? What was happening that day? The sky side looked good. You know, I had been out uh, about a week before, and and I flew into an air mass that turned out to not be particularly wavy and there was way too much cloud and it was really an unpleasant flight where uh you know i just in the end i i needed the engine twice and i dragged myself home so uh on this particular flight i could see that the day was going to be okay and you know sky sight was showing lots of lots of five knots up and which is not it's not particularly strong but uh, the thing with wave is that you know, I won't, I'm not looking for super strong days because a super strong day and fighting with 2000 feet per minute up is just, it's just a huge hassle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you know, my main goal on uh, that particular day was I was just going to go exercise these wave lane procedures with air traffic control. And, um, you know, I, we, we've got until the end of March to, uh, to, get enough flying in that nav Canada will make the whole wave lanes, uh, air traffic control procedures, um, finalize them and they'll just be a permanent, a, a permanent thing. And that's but getting the wave lanes done is a really, and written in stone is really important for, uh, for flying wave out of Calgary and flying wave in, in Canada, since well, this is the best place for it. And I, th- I think you're lucky in the sense that I, th- I met uh, the gentleman this summer. As a matter of fact, I had a flight with him, who's an air traffic controller out there, who I think is doing a fair amount of the interface work with the government on this, right? So you've met Ty- Tyler Parody? Yes, yes. 
Oh, I didn't know that. I went uh, for a flight in the Cowley Wave Camp uh, in October. I dropped by on my way, uh, on my long drive out west. Wow, I, I had no idea. So you're you're a little bit familiar with what this is all like. A little bit, Good. a little bit. I'm starting to uh, try to figure out how to get oxygen in the Jantar at some point when we start flying Wave out there as well. But uh, yes, I'm looking forward to learning more. But it's interesting that... You and Tyler and these guys are, are working out the system to be able to fly the, the wave without air traffic shutting you down. Yes. And, you know, south of south of Calgary, any being able to even fly a thousand kilometer flight south of Calgary, um, being able to fly that is, is, is already has been essential. You know, I didn't have a single thousand kilometer flight before Tyler started helping out mm -hmm. and I started getting these these clearances. Um, and you know, it's, it's amazing that with our conditions here, just from south of Calgary down to the U S border, uh, there's a thousand kilometers of terrain there without even getting into any kind of hot, high, um, busy airspace west of Calgary. Uh, there's, there's already a thousand kilometer flight there for people to, right. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we, we spoke in the podcast over a year ago where you were flying, across the U.S. border, down to the States, back and forth, and, and those wave conditions along the, uh, on that eastern side of the, the Rocky Mountain Range. Yes. Yeah. And, but to get west of Calgary, because uh, west of Calgary, we have the jets coming in from Vancouver. We have jets headed out to the west. And so just getting, sneaking by that uh, 100 kilometers to the west of, 100 kilometers north-south band, to the west of Calgary has been has really required Tyler to to get in and and write the uh, write some procedures and train the air traffic controllers. So every flight now is to you know I go out and 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 deal with ATC and just make sure everybody's happy and and request the clearances and it's going really really well. So yeah, it's you great. know all it's of these flights. Are it's teamwork, and I'm sure at certain points these guys are going to be rooting for you as well if you're on a long distance flight like the one you just did. Yes. And, and already, already they are, they are. And, um, I mean, that's, that's just, just amazing. I'll get into a little bit of that on this, on this flight, but yeah, it nav Canada and Tyler and air traffic control has been really, really helpful. And on, on this, yep. Carol. I was going to say, yeah. So let's get back to this particular flight. You said you were looking at sky side. It looked like you were going to have sort of a five knots up wave conditions along that entire stretch of the Rockies is, and, but it, it looked good and consistent and you launched. But, you know, I, I, I get up and I, I don't want to, to get west of Calgary and be down in the clouds and be causing trouble for air traffic control. So I just headed down to the U.S. border a couple of times um, and just waiting to see if the conditions west of Calgary would improve. And because there's just too much cloud, too mm -hmm. much cloud to see a path through. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, you know, chilled out for three hours, just, just down to the American border and back. And then I was just looking at my, my notes from the flight. Cause I fly with the knee board now to keep all these clearances straight. <laughs> and, and at, at, um, 1 PM, I, I looked North and I decided, you know, it's dried out a little bit. Let's go North. You know, let's, it's 1 PM. The sun is going down in six hours or five hours, let's fly 450 kilometers north. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I started, started booking north. And, and you, when you say booking, um, you are booking, you're doing 140 K an hour kind of thing, right? Yeah. About 140 knots, 100 knots, yeah, about 140. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, 140K is, is pretty slow. Yeah. This. <laughs> yeah. The crossing to the west of Calgary went went really well. And um, I mean, basically, it was just a straight shot to Hinton. And Hinton is a six-hour drive from Black Diamond. And, and Black Diamond being your gliding club, you know, just, and Hinton is... To yes. the to the northwest of Calgary, and people are going to have to look in the OLC and look at this particular flight. I'll put up the link uh, for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hinton is uh, four hundred kilometers or and change north of Black Diamond, and you know it's 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 already up north of north mm-hmm. of Edmonton. It's it's far, and as just a straight shot, you know, conditions just 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 pushing and of course the sun keeps going down and down and down and um and And it's uh, beautiful it's breathtaking right oh yeah yeah it was um and you know when when wave is working well you just you just trim for speed you trim for 120 130 knots and you're just looking around Mm -hmm. and um and uh you know keeping track of what air traffic control wants and what what um, altitude are you at at this point? These um, the, my clearances here are all for seventeen thousand five hundred. Mm-hmm. So I suspect I would have been at sixteen seventeen thousand feet the entire time. So not stupid high, but high. Yeah, not not stupid high, but you know I like seventeen thousand because mm-hmm. if if oxygen runs out or you know oxygen is the main thing. Yeah, you got a good margin. Not, Exactly. There's a margin. There's time to descend. It's it's fine. Whereas you know twenty five thirty thousand, it's not not the case. And did you, and did you it, have a passenger uh, with you? I did not have a passenger with me. Although you know, on a flight like that, having a passenger would help because mm-hmm. it just makes makes the Arcus go so much faster. Right. Well, just let me know the next flight. I'll like be that. out there. <laughs> right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so 4 p.m. Um, I was up north of Hinton, and and the sky completely dried out to the north, and and I was look honestly at that point I was looking for an excuse to turn around because mm-hmm. the sun was going to be down in two hours, and and headed south, um, headed south, and so it was like an hour and 40 minutes. I was back down by Black Diamond, which so a six hour drive, flew it in an hour and 40 minutes. Wow. Um, and Yep. Was there anything challenging in this flight? It sounds like everything went according to plan. It didn't sound like you had any issues. Uh, the at the end of the flight, because I was looking at these kilometers, looking at sixteen hundred kilometers, and thinking, man, maybe I can get an extra hundred kilometers heading further south. And and by the time I was down south of Black Diamond, I had flown completely out of the other side of the air mass. And, and that had dried out. So I managed to fall out of the wave and had a very unpleasant flight back to, to Black Diamond, you know, hoping not to use the engine and drag myself in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the main challenge on, on the flight was, um, well, I, I guess the thing that, that was the highest stress was when I was to the west of Calgary, you know, air traffic control is trying to support this flight they're trying to support me they know tyler and tyler has really sold this whole thing well and um so i've asked if i could stay at seventeen thousand feet and they they ask if i can maintain that altitude if i can stay high <laughs> right they haven't quite which figured, me, yeah. they haven't yeah, quite they figured haven't out quite the whole figured. gliding thing but they're getting there exactly and then i i agree to it 
And then, you know, I sit there for a while and I'm thinking, this means that there's going to be planes taking off out of Calgary. They're going to be flying underneath of me. And so I got back on, got back on the radio and told air traffic control that this was dumb. I shouldn't have agreed to this. I'll just lower a little bit and they can send the planes over me. And is that and, what happened? Uh, and, that, and that's, and that's what actually, I think what they ended up doing is they just, um, perhaps delayed takeoffs for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, they, they asked me to lower a little bit and I immediately went down to 15,000. So it was really good that I hadn't committed to maintaining that altitude. That was a good lesson that mm-hmm. gliders don't commit, no matter how strong the lift is, don't commit to maintaining altitude. Right. And, um, and you know, the, so that was the most stressful part of the flight. And then the highlight of the flight was a few minutes later, uh, the air traffic control team from Calgary commented that they were really impressed with my ground speed. <laughs> and, and that felt, that felt awesome <laughs> because 130 knots, 130 knots doesn't, for me, doesn't feel particularly fast at this point. And you know, that air traffic control, they're moving around planes all the time that are doing 600 knots. But they were still. Yeah, they all have a bunch of engines hanging on the wings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But to have impressed air traffic control, uh, that was, that was, that was nice. And um, that's important because, you know, keeping the support of Calgary Terminal is, is really important for the whole Wavelengths program. So. Yeah, but at at the same time, let's get back to this flight. This is a record breaking flight. I mean, talk to me about, I think this is the best flight ever in Canada. Is that right? (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, I, I think I don't really, I don't really connect with that because, you know, at these speeds, you just need the air to behave for five hours, six hours, and you have a record breaking flight. Yeah, but you, you did it. Um, you were there. You, you know, everything has to come together, yes. but it still came together for you. So yes. it's, it's, it's fantastic. Yes, it, it did. And, uh, and, and, you know, it, it makes me think that there's there's 2,000 plus kilometer flights out here, which is um, is going to be great to look to the, for the conditions to put to put those together. Well, on, your, and, on the OLC, I noticed in comments you wrote, didn't even use the whole day, exclamation mark. So I imagine there, there was some distance left if, if you'd push it harder, right? Yes. Um, you know, I, I think if I had launched earlier, I probably couldn't have done anything with the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, on a lot of these wave flights, it's taking off 10 minutes after civil twilight starts and then landing 10 minutes before civil twilight ends. And, and on this day, it was, you know, I was, I was airborne an hour and a half after the sun came up and then landed an hour before the sun sunset. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's. There was tons of days of day left if I had had the conditions to, um, to allow it. But yes, um, is is definitely really really went well. And no, so um, re- remind me of the Canadian yeah. records you broke in this flight. What what are the records that you now hold? Well, <laughs> this is going to sound funny. Um, that because of the way the records are scored your you know olc will score uh six leg mm-hmm. but you know five turn points so so the i currently have the three turn point 
which is I think about 1,140 kilometers, and the out and return uh, 840 kilometers. And this was down to Helena, Montana, mm-hmm. about 240 kilometers south of the border and back up. So on this flight, um, you know, 1,600 kilometers would be the OLC scoring, but I'd have to subtract off down to the U.S. border and back. Uh, so I'd lose probably 350. So this would score as a uh, about a 1250 kilometer three turn point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so in in fact, I'm not actually going to apply for a, you know, a Canadian record to break my Canadian record. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Tough yeah, position um, to be in, but okay. <laughs> yes, that's right. You know, there's so many, there's so many 1500 kilometer flights to be had. Um, yeah, there's, there's a fair amount of paperwork in, in going through the, uh, the other thing that's challenging on these flights and is to keep the glider from being pushed up through airspace over such a long period of time. And on a lot of the flights that are record breakers, by the time you go through the the log, I'll find that at some point in the flight, I had been pushed up through my clearance by a few feet. And air traffic control doesn't care about that kind of thing. But for a, a record flight, it has to be it has to be always under the clearance. Right. And that's that's challenging when you're flying potentially, well, sometimes right up to the edge of V and E to just try to to try to dump some altitude um, in, in all that, that so, strong lift. But you're not, so you're not going to claim the, the your new record to beat your old record. But the fact is, it's still a spectacular flight. And I, I don't think even anybody's beat you on the OLC since this flight either. I, I haven't checked in the last little bit, but I, I still think your flight stands at the moment for 2022. Yes. Yes, that's that it will still be, I think, by far the longest flight anywhere in the world in 2022 so far. Pretty damn good. Yeah. Now, yes, I, I think that you're sort of salivating after that 2000 kilometer flight. Is that something that you think you're going to be able to try in the next year, you think? I think so. The, I mean, certainly there's a lot of, a lot of work that, that goes into supporting these flights and, you know, staying organized. And right now I'm feeling a little bit behind the ball on all my systems and, um, you know, to keep the runway cleared off. So I'm not sure how much more flying I'll be able to do this season. When you say runway the cleared off, we're talking to... about snow at QNIM. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a 45,000 pound snow plow and a 45,000 pound snow blower there that keeps the, to keep the runway clear. So, um, certainly, <laughs> certainly busy, but, uh, and I, I don't know if there will be, if I'll find the time to clear mm-hmm. and, and continue continue flying um well you gotta you gotta get I'm, your support team out there those guys need to be out there yes. before dawn clearing the runway warming up your glider and getting everything ready to go come on what's wrong with them yes exactly yeah <laughs> um the uh yeah i mean from here the the big push i'm really looking forward to the u.s being a, a feeling a little bit more reasonable for overflights. Mm-hmm. Because with the, you know, the pandemic restrictions coming and going, I'm a little bit hesitant to fly over. I haven't done any overflights to the U.S. since that. Right. Um, since, since this started, it just seemed like 
it, it would be a terrible experience to get stuck on the other side of the border. Sure, it was going to be tough then, enough as it was without having COVID around, but uh, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. And, but, you know, that, that country to the south side of the border is, there's some really nice wave terrain, you know, headed down through past Helena and Great Falls and potentially all the way down through uh, Yellowstone. And, and, you know, even though you have the, the stress of being over a foreign country, it's less, the, the land out options are better than mm-hmm. being over the Canadian boreal forest. Um, you know, way up northwest of Edmonton. Yeah, yeah. So, there's, yeah. The so. land out opportunities are slim. You know, what I was going to ask you, is it modern technology? You know, we talked about SkySight off the top of this interview. You know, you've got an amazing glider, the Arcus-M, the technology in the cockpit, all the flight computers, but also the, the weather forecasting tools. It, I don't think you'd be able to do these type of flights 10 years ago. Is Is, is that right? What do you think? I think there's there's no way there's no way without supercomputers. You know, people were ten twenty years ago. People were doing flights around QNAM and just from so south of Calgary down to the U.S. border and back. There was a, a fellow who flew out of Claire's home in a motor glider for years on his own. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's indispensable to be able to look at at those, you know, the air masses and look at the humidity flowing across the mountains because, you know, the wave can can go from being a clear sailing day and it can trigger a thunderstorm in 20 minutes. Um, it, you know, it usually doesn't, but I've, but I've seen it. And to be, to be able to commit to going so far out of the comfort zone, like, you know, um, 250 kilometers south of the border or way up north of Hinton, it really requires for me, for my own personal comfort level to be able to, you know, to see what, what the, um, the weather forecasters think is coming mm-hmm. across the rocks. And you can see this on, on windy.com. If you just look at the humidity and, uh, and you set the height to 12,000 feet and you can just see the bands of humidity coming and going. And there's so much air has flowed through over um, like potentially a 700 kilometer flight north to south. So much air has flowed through from west to east. And but the, uh, the, yeah, the, the forecast you're getting, I mean, that that's what's making the difference as well, right? The 24 hours out, the 12 hours out, the, the supercomputers are crunching this stuff and you, you get a, a solid level of confidence when you launch because of this, right? Yes, and it doesn't, it doesn't always work out, but more often than not, I'm, I, I look at it and you think, when I launched, this piece of air that I'm in was over the Pacific Ocean. How <laughs> did the supercomputers know what the humidity would be of this piece of air that was over the Pacific Ocean, came across the Rockies, snowed the whole way, you know, dropped off the rocks, bounced into wave, and they knew the temperature profile and the humidity of this. It's, I, I don't think I'd have the nerve to do this without all of that, that forecasting. You know, I, I'm going to let you go in a sec, but I interviewed an author of, of a book called The Weather Machine. It's Andrew something. I forget his last name right now. I'll look it up. Fabulous read. It's something you, you might be interested in just because it puts this all together about how 
modern weather uh, forecasting and computers the way this all has come together in the last little while. So I'll, I'll, I'll send you a, a link for that. The weather machine. I yeah, will check that out. It's really good. Listen, a, a pleasure speaking with you again, Chester. And uh, I have a feeling that we're going to be talking about a 2,000 kilometer flight at some point in the next year or two. So best of luck with your flying. Stay safe and uh, looking forward to seeing you on the OLC again. Well, thank you for having me on, Harry. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Good night. Chester Fitchett spoke to me from Calgary, Alberta. You heard Chester mention the bromance that's been going on with Canadian air traffic control in this part of the world. One of the key players in working out wave clearances for glider pilots is Tyler Paradis. Tyler is an experienced Albertan glider pilot, tow pilot, and for his day job, an IFR air traffic control specialist who works out of the Edmonton Area Control Centre, which is where I reached him. Hey Tyler, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, no problem. So we just heard Chester praise air traffic control for facilitating his uh, latest 1600 kilometer flight. Let's start with the basics. What are wave lanes and how do they work? Uh, wave lanes kind of came out of an idea that uh, Chester and I had to figure out a good way to get him through the congested airspace beside Calgary. So his, uh, his flights that he had done up until that point were available on OLC. And just in parallel, before I joined QNIM, I kind of noticed that he was he was in some airspace that you know he's totally allowed to be in, but being at twelve five um, below class C must have really presented some challenges for him. And I kind of reached out to say, hey, you know, I'm here uh, and I'm willing to to work with you to try to find a better way to do this. So that's kind of where it started. And what what exactly would this this wave lane look like? We're talking sort of a highway in the sky for glider pilots to safely transit through these areas without conflicting with uh, the big silver things? Yes, like uh, west of Calgary and and onwards, you can fly VFR um, at 12,500 feet, and that's totally totally within the air regulations. I think out in Ontario, you'd have to, you'd have to reanalyze your situation if you're going to fly around at 12,500, but I think it's all transponder airspace out there. Um, whereas out here in Alberta, it's not. So mm -hmm. what we wanted to find was a happy medium between getting in the wave, staying in the wave, and not going above 18,000 feet, but not having to put a glider pilot in a position where you're, you're uncomfortably in the bottom end of the wave. Mm -hmm. So based on his previous flights, we kind of knew where the good spots were when the wave was active. And once we plotted that out on a map, um, pretty much rudimentary, we we then started trying to figure out a, the shape of these lanes. So basically we wanted to make a corridor, um, picture a rectangular cross-section between 12.5 and 18,000. Um, and we had to determine the, if you look at it from like a, from a map point of view, the width of each of these corridors, but whether they be five miles, 10 miles, 30 miles, there was going to be a sweet spot between where it was comfortable for Chester to sort of uh, move around within, but not so burdening to air traffic control that we were giving away too much airspace that we had to start um, restricting arrivals and departures into Calgary. So sure, because that's that going to cost airlines money, right? 
yeah, nobody wants to to be the guy that's proposing, you know, costing airlines hundreds of dollars to level off or get low um, every day that uh, Chester's out there. So, um, yeah, we kind of had to find the sweet spot. And I'd worked on some projects like this before with, a, with another glider pilot, uh, Tim Wood, but he he uh, he wanted to fly in Class A above 18,000. So we made a set of procedures for him, and it was cumbersome. And Chester and I kind of decided that there was no added value for him to be in Class A, so we decided to keep it all in Class B. And yeah, we sat down with uh, um, pilots from QNIM, and we kind of looked at the shape of Cowley and where which the is where the wave camp was. Yes, the Cowley wave camp. And QNIM has a, a CYA just on the south side of Calgary, so we wanted to integrate being able to depart from QNIM, enter the wave somewhere close to QNIM, and then, you know, once you get up and established in the wave, you, the, the world's your oyster kind of thing. So, so, so essentially yeah, for our, our international listeners, I mean, we just heard Chester talk about his flight, but essentially we're trying to facilitate wave flying all along the eastern side of the Canadian Rockies. Yeah, that's correct. So there is probably 20 miles of real estate between where the Rockies end and where the big terminal control area for Calgary International starts. And the wave lanes kind of capture that airspace between the rocks, the airport, and in Class B airspace above, or sorry, 12.5 and above and below 18,000. Mm-hmm. So further to the south of Calgary and further to the northwest of Calgary, there isn't the traffic density that exists due west of Calgary. So those lanes and procedures were fairly straightforward to build, but uh, the ones for the two lanes that exist just west of Calgary, they were the ones that were the main concern for uh, both Chester and for NAC Canada. So, so what was it like yeah, to get buy-in on this? Um, from the procedures point of view, um, obviously safety was the, the main concern if we were going to, provide a control service for someone uh, in this airspace. We had to make sure that everybody was going to be looked after. So that was the main concern. I would say that um, pitching the idea, um, demonstrating the capabilities of Chester's aircraft, uh, his Arcus there to stay within the the limits of the lanes that we drew was, was definitely um, a good selling feature. So once we, once we showcased that to the procedures um, department here at Nav Canada, it was a pretty straightforward approval process. Now, Chester has obviously been working with you to get this process, the kinks worked out to make it uh, work smoothly. But you're setting, yeah. you're, you're you're breaking the ground for other glider pilots that uh, want to do this. Is that uh, right? Yes. So Chester was uh, nominated as the wavelength coordinator. We're calling it, mm-hmm. and as he's kind of like the the pioneering bridge between air traffic control procedures, controlled DFR, um, mountain wave flying, all these sort of topics between, um, you know, the the rank and file at, uh, at QNIM or at Cowley and performing these wave flights in controlled airspace. He's the one who's defining the process. And between him and I, we're refining all the, the, the tiny details that pop up. So... This once, is really exciting because it means that pilots, I mean, potentially from around the world, we could be turning the eastern side of the Rockies into a, a really hot international gliding destination. Yeah, 100%. So 
once you get trained um, on the ground with procedures, um, I could see, and I think maybe Chester mentioned it, that uh, you do a dual flight with him or, you know, a suitable instructor just to get used to all the things that you have to juggle while you're doing this. And the lanes are segmented in, in such a way that you could fly in the easy two lanes, like lane one and lane two, they're designed to be south of Calgary, and, and you could probably fly a thousand kilometers in there, no problem. Once Chester's happy with the way you can handle all the procedures, I'm sure that he will um, facilitate taking a crack at lane three and four, which is the critical lanes beside Calgary. So um, that's kind of like the gate and the wave that exists north of Calgary that, that Chester's been, been exploring now, I think, is, you know, world-class for distance. Uh, I don't think there's... Oh, he's talking 2,000K, hopefully, at some point. But, yeah, like, he almost he almost got that before. So, And that was just his first attempt at putting one together from the border all the way up to the Jasper. So hmm. um, we're just at the very start of something kind of big here. And, yeah, it's kind of exciting. Well, I, I think it's really exciting having a, a guy like you on the inside yeah. who can facilitate this sort of stuff and, and explain it and get people to buy it in a way that everybody gets it and we're all into safety and it's fabulous. Yeah, well, gliding's given me a lot over my life and uh, I'm just happy to sort of start giving back in the, in the way that I can. So I, I'm starting to think somehow Chester's going to have to start giving you credit for these long flights because they wouldn't work otherwise, right? Getting through this airspace, he I think O L C and thanks to, you know, I don't. I don't think I'm playing that big of a part. I think putting yourself out there for for 12 hours in the waves that's uh, that's a lot bigger an accomplishment than than the paper that I push over here. Tyler, um, really appreciate you chatting with me and telling me how this all works, and uh, I'm looking forward to coming out west and maybe getting another wave flight with you at some point. Yeah, anytime, Harry. Cool. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. IFR Air Traffic Control Specialist and Glider Pilot Tyler Parody spoke to me from Edmonton, Alberta. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States, and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. Doug Fronius is a retired aerospace engineer with a passion for gliding. I met him a number of years ago at one of the vintage meets in Elmira, New York. I had taken my vintage LK-10 trainer south from Canada, and Doug had driven his restored LK-10 east from California. This past summer, Doug made the same drive, but this time he was towing his recently restored 87-year-old Robin sailplane. But this was no ordinary restoration. The restoration is steeped in family history. I've reached Doug at his home in San Diego. Hello, Doug. This is such a lovely story. It's it's as much about the glider as it is about your father. I think it's a great story. It really is about three people or three entities. It's about my father and what he did with his glider. It's about growing up with it in the backyard. 
And it's also about Johnny Robinson, world famous, world's first diamond pilot who actually built the glider and taught himself to soar and flew competitively with it in the 1930s. So all that's wrapped into the story and, and I, I enjoy the history and uh, I'm very um, proud to have been able to bring the glider back to life. So let's start at the beginning. When was this Robin built and, and describe the glider to me? The glider was built over a period of time because Johnny Robinson home built a series of gliders starting about 1934. And each glider he built uh, was made up of some parts from the previous one. So this particular glider, which was the definitive version, the last version of his series of home builds, has a wing that was actually built in 1935. And I should backtrack a little bit. The wing came later because Johnny built the fuselage that I'm flying in 1937. <laughs> that was the third version of the glider. And then later he retrofitted the wing that's on it now in 1938, but that wing was built in 35, home built from Gruno Baby plants. Wow. You said Gruno it's, Baby. It's kind of confused. Gruno Baby. So the wing is a Gruno Baby wing built in 1935, but put onto Johnny's fuselage in 1938. The fuselage he built in 37 and flew originally with a different wing. And, and what does it look like? G give me a sense of the the shape of it? Well, the wing, uh, Gruno Baby, most uh, listeners will be familiar with that shape, a strut braced a wood um, a wing. The fuselage is a steel tube fuselage, uh, conventional configuration, um, conventional landing gear and skid. Um, it, I'm not sure how to describe the look. It looks, the pilot is sitting upright, so it's fairly tall. Johnny was a small guy. He made his fuselage very narrow, so it's, it's very uh, a skinny fuselage from the front view. Um, the tail is a very rounded vertical tail, a small vertical fin, large vertical, large rudder, as was common in the day. Right. Um, not unlike a Minamoa tail or a TG2 tail or something like that. You, you know what I'll do? I'll get you to send me some pictures and I'll put them up on the uh, Facebook page for the podcast. And uh, listeners will be able to go okay. and have a look at it. So that's probably a good way sure. to do it. Yeah, that, that would be good. The horizontal tail is a, are full-flying elevators, um, tapered uh, wooden structures. The Johnny was a welder, and he used steel wherever it made sense to him, which was nearly everywhere. So the, <laughs> the vertical tail, the rudder, the elevators are all... Primary, primarily steel inside, steel spars, steel fittings, all steel fuselage, and then with wooden ribs and fabric covering. The original wings that were on this fuselage were also all steel inside. How heavy um, is it? it it's, it's not too bad. It's about 420 pounds empty with 40 pounds of ballast. Huh. And the glider is very tail heavy. All that steel back in the tail made a difference. Huh. And it required 40 pounds of lead in the nose to get the CG where it should be. Huh. Uh, that's pretty heavy. And for the glider a was always that. It's pretty heavy for uh, Bruno Baby 
you know, Adruno baby and the the U.S. baby bolus essentially have the same wing. Right. They're typically uh, at least 100 pounds lighter. Now, let's get back into the chronology of the story a bit. How did your father acquire this glider? So, so Johnny built the glider over a period of several years in the 30s. And this version, yeah, I'll call it the 1939 version, he later acquired a glider known as the Zanonia, in which he went to on to um, uh, much fame and soaring the first time in the U.S. Nationals three times, et cetera. And in 1941, he sold the Robin to uh, two fellows in Southern California. They flew it some, and then World War II started, and it went into storage. Then after the war, they sold it to my dad in 1946. Hmm. So my dad had it in 46. He had to recover it. He refurbished it, uh, made, some, made some changes, not too major, and started flying it. And he flew it from about 47 until 1954. It was very badly damaged in an outline, outlanding while flying in the Torrey Pines contest. Mm -hmm. And uh, nine months after that outlanding or essentially a crash, um, I was born. So that's how my connection to Robin is uh, for my entire life. <laughs> um, during the time my dad had the glider, he, he was always one who liked to experiment. So he made many modifications. It was kind of his test bed to try things out. The first, and many of them were minor, but some two were very major. The first major thing he did was to equip the glider with a parachute, a whole plane parachute. And he demonstrated dropping the glider by parachute at the Torrey Pines contest. And these were old cargo so, parachutes that were surplus from the war or something. Right, right. He was a, a professional parachutist. He jumped in air shows and things in the 30s and the 40s and uh, did a lot with parachutes. That was his, his business, his occupation. He, he had a parachute shop. And he, um, he dropped the glider. Uh, and after that, the parachute was integrated as a permanent installation in the glider for emergency use. He never dropped it all the way to the ground. Just as with the whole plane parachutes of today, it would work in an emergency and the aircraft would land with some damage but save the occupants. Um, so he would drop it by chute and then release the chute from the glider and recover from the dive and come back in and land. Wow, that must have been amazing and to see. Yeah, he did it in front of uh, you know thousands of spectators at the Torrey Pines contest. And it was even pictures of it in the local paper. A little so, si sidebar uh, here. Did did I not meet your father in in 1995 or something at at one of the uh, vintage meets? You did in 1995, the first IBSM, where we met, and my my dad and I drove the LK from California to New York. He, huh. he rode with me. He was 80 years old then, right? And I came all the way back, and we rode drove all the way back home again. Yeah, because it just struck me that I that I'd met your dad. So okay, sorry. Anyway, I'm, sorry for interrupting, sure but yeah, did. keep keep telling the story. It's great. So the next major change he made is he, you know, I mentioned already the glider has forty pounds of lead in the nose. He decided to uh, modify the glider into a V tail, and he stated the one reason was because it was so tail heavy, you could get rid of a lot of weight, and the second was to be aerodynamically cleaner. 
Mm-hmm. I think the real reason was it sounded like a cool thing to do. You just like to experiment. <laughs> so he took the same elevators and cranked them up at an angle into a V. So it was a full flying V tail, like a Austria SHK or some cell plane like that has today. And and he flew it that way. I'm going to interrupt again for a sec. How back then? I mean, now just the thought of doing that myself scares me. And your dad wasn't a professional aerospace engineer like you are. How did he know that was safe and that was going to work and all of those things? Well, he had a lot of um, experience around aircraft. So you you, you build it. Um, the, the construction of his mod was quite impressive. I've looked through it a lot, what he did, and it was uh, it was definitely strong enough. The way he modified the aft fuselage to uh, to and the way he designed the mixer system to uh, mix the um, the rudder and the elevator controls into the V tail. Uh, aerodynamically, it wasn't the greatest because he used the same elevators and cranked them up, so they were actually too small. Okay. The V-tail was not large enough aerodynamically. It looks pretty sporty to me as a as a professional engineer and somebody who's designed airplanes all his life. Um, but he thought it flew great. He said it worked super. He could get rid of all the lead. It balanced perfectly. He was very proud of it, and he should be. Um, only one other person ever flew the glider with the V-tail, and that was uh, Pete Gerard, who was a, a noted professional test pilot and glider flying buddy of my dad's. Pete pulled me aside one day and told me, if you ever rebuild the Robin, don't ever fly the (laughs) V-tail. He did not think it could recover from a spin. But we'll never know because um, when I rebuilt the glider, I decided to put the conventional tail back on it and rebuild it in the configuration it was in when Johnny Robinson was competing because that was its most famous configuration. It did the most flying. So let's and, uh, the, the the glider crashed in 1952. What happened? Right, 54. 54. Sorry. What happened for the next 60, 70 years? Well, the glider went into storage in, in our yard. I was just, you know, as I mentioned, nine months after that, I was born. My brother came along a couple of years later. And my dad settled down to raising a family and essentially got out of soaring. Um, We still went to all the air shows and all the glider meets all the time. That's what we did on weekends. Uh, The Robin and a couple of other gliders that he had had were all stored in a shed in our backyard where (laughs) I was growing up. He did stay in aviation for something to do on weekends. He bought a derelict North American 1886 and spent weekends for about 10 years rebuilding it um uh just for uh airplane project to work on on saturday right to keep his hand um, in aviation right and, and he worked in aviation as a uh, experimental um mechanic um aircraft builder for the major aerospace companies hmm. uh, about 10 years after it was crashed in the in early to mid 60s a friend of his name named dave boone retired a glider flying friend. And Dave came to my dad and said, hey, I need something to do. How about if I rebuild the Robin? And uh, they said, okay, that sounds like a good plan. They set up a dirt floor shop in our backyard. And uh, Dave proceeded to pretty much work full time for a couple of years rebuilding the Robin. 
And my dad would help on weekends. And that's when I first worked on a full-scale aircraft. So I was about 10 years old. And I worked on the Robin. So this is early 60s, early 1960s. It's mid-60s. Okay. Like 10 years after the crash. Okay. And and, um, Dave got the, uh, in the crash, one wing was completely broken, uh, main spar broken about five feet from the roof. It was pretty banged up. He got the wings, the woodwork of the wings completely rebuilt. Um, up, did a lot of um, refurbishment unrelated to the crash, like new trading edges and rebuilt the ailerons and things like that. And they were ready for fittings and control cables and varnishing. And my dad started working on the fuselage and he decided, remember, he likes to experiment that, hey, Doug and his brother Floyd are, 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 getting about ready to take them flying, we better modify the Robin to a two-seat glider. <laughs> and, and that was a, a, a major poor strategy. He, in order to, uh, if you look at the glider when you see the pictures, in order to make room for a second seat, you pretty much have to completely cut all the fuselage up. And he managed to remove about 50% of the tubing structure, um, not just the part that had and damage. It was much more extensive. And then he built up a new structure, got it all tack welded together on the jig of the two-seat version. And it became really clear that there were serious engineering problems with the mod. It was, again, being done uh, cut, fit, weld versus design first. Right, right. And once it got that far along, this was, uh, I think we were in over our heads. It, It would never work out as a good design. As a safe design. As a safe design, yeah. or as a practical design. And it kind of, the glider kind of got hung up from the garage rafters again. So nothing happened after about 1968 at that time. And it was stored from 1968 until about 2018. So for 50 years, the glider was stored. And the only thing that happened during those 50 years is I bought the glider from my dad. I got the paperwork straightened out, so it was registered. I kept the registration current, and I collected parts and pictures. So every time there'd be something in a box, a scrap of metal, and I said, what is this? And I'd figure out that it's from the Robin. It would go in a storage space marked Robin parts. And um, and I'd collect pictures from wherever I could find them. Other than that, it was just stored. It got moved from uh, many to many different storage places over the years. Uh, it collected quite a bit of hanger rash because of that. When you're storing an old wooden glider with no fabric, it's hard to keep from damaging the ribs or, at times. But nothing major happened to it. And then you retired and decided to take it on? Well, I was already, I had already decided to rebuild it. It was in my shop at home. Um, I had jigs set up, but progress while I was still working was extremely slow. Uh, So when I retired, I had uh, drawings uh, made up of the fuselage, you know, reverse engineered what the tubing structure really should look like using uh, parts, pictures, and guess what, you know, estimates. I had a jig set up. I had actually uh, fit a few tubes 
but again, progress is slow. And once I retired, then I could accelerate that greatly. And? So most, and so in 2018, I retired and started working on it in earnest. And um, IBSM was scheduled for 2020. In 2018, I thought I could make it. It became pretty clear that, that was going to be very difficult. And then COVID hit, and that uh, allowed me to finish it in time for IVSM since IVSM moved to 2021. And I'm going to interrupt for a second. IVSM is the International Vintage Sailplane Meet that's held every couple of years in Elmira, New York. Yeah, yeah thank you. I should explain that. It is <laughs> the biggest uh, vintage event in the USA. Yeah. So, but you made it. You got the goal. You managed to finish the project and get it out to IVSM this year. Yeah, it was quite an effort at this springtime, uh, you know, one step after another from, you know, getting it all covered and getting it, uh, weight, doing weight and balance and getting the FAA uh, airworthiness approval and getting it trailered, you know, get, setting up a trailer and having a trailer accident, getting a different trailer and, and getting it up to a home glider port attached, being doing the flight test and flying off the the requisite hours to be allowed to fly it somewhere else and then trailering it with the help of great friends all the way to uh, New York and, and flying it there. The last time it flew in New York at Elmira was 1939, huh. and, and we returned in 2021. Doc, put me in the cockpit. What was it like to fly that glider after the restoration after so many decades and knowing that the last person at the controls was your father? Well, it was, it was both um, emotional and also just... Um, What's the right word? It was just uh, concentrating on flying it well. Mm -hmm. I, I was most worried about making a dumb mistake and looking silly, uh, less worried about whether the glider would fly fine. Uh, we did a, a pretty careful buildup, uh, did a pair of cartos down the runway with a good expert team. And uh, uh, the glider flew, uh, I'd say, quite well from the very first takeoff. Uh, it was, it's no problem at all to fly. It handles better than I expected, and I haven't found any real issues. Um, there are some peculiar features of how it handles, but nothing that's a problem. Huh. Well, I, I hope that at some point I'll be in Southern California and come by for a visit and see this lovely restoration. It sounds just fantastic, and, and what a lovely story. Well, I, I hope to see you too. You should come by and there's an LK waiting for you to fly and attach be where the thermals go to 18,000 feet and, um, and it has oxygen. So you're ready to go. Wow. I'm in. Doug, listen, thanks so, so very much for telling us this story about the, the glider and your father. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much and, and hope to see you soon. Very good. Thank you. We'll okay. talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Doug Fronier spoke to me from his home in San Diego. I've posted some of the fabulous photos of this Robin on the Thermals Facebook page. What do most of the record-breaking pilots you hear on the Thermal have in common? 
Almost all of them use SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more about how this weather app works, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. For listeners of the Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. Glider pilots all have one thing in common. At some point, sooner or later, we will all be on the inevitable final glide. The big final glide with no more takeoffs. Often when a fellow glider pilot has caught his or her last thermal, the poem High Flight by pilot officer John Gillespie is often read out. It's a very moving and lovely poem, probably the most famous poem about flying that's ever been written. But it's not gliding specific. Longtime glider pilot and instructor Bob Peary has put pen to paper and written a moving poem for glider pilots entitled Final Glide. I reached Bob Peary at his home in Urchfont, Wiltshire, England. So before I get you to read this particular poem, what inspired you to write it? I guess it's advancing years, really, uh, over many years of gliding. Um, I've uh, unfortunately attended various memorials, funerals of aviators of various types, and um, I've been very, very uh, touched and impressed by the uh, by Gillespie's poem, High Flight, mm-hmm. which uh, yeah. is absolutely fantastic, and uh, nobody could hope to match that. But then it did occur to me fairly recently that, um, well, maybe uh, glider pilots could do with a choice of a poem of their own. And indeed, I was just thinking about when my time comes, which I hope won't be for a few years yet. So I uh, was working on this and a number of other things and uh, worked on this poem Um, and then it was suggested that well perhaps I should share it with other glider pilots in case their loved ones or relatives would like to use it as well so uh, I did that via sailplaning gliding and via yourself. So before we go much further why don't you read the poem for us? I called the poem uh, Final Glide. The clouds they are dispersing the sun is sinking west. The vario reminds me that the day has passed its best. I've soared and scraped and scud run using thermal, wave and coast. But now the time's arrived for me to make that last approach. My smoothest landing ever. Old familiar faces loom to guide me across the track to the hangar through the gloom. All is still and quiet while the slumbering gliders snore. But reverie is broken as they shut the hangar door. Alone now in the darkness, I reflect upon the joy that gliding has provided since I was just a boy. The dark gets even blacker as I shuffle past the fleet, avoiding fragile wingtips with my slowly chilling feet. And then I'm attracted by a piercing shaft of light which leads me through the back doors to a quite amazing sight. The sun is shining brightly. Where has the darkness gone? The cumulus is building. High time that I was gone. A gleaming bird awaits me, a whispering tug alongside. Up slack, all out, requested. Then I start my final glide. There's an angel off my wingtip who points the way we'll fly. Then we soar and climb together to that goal beyond the sky. 
That's very moving. I have, uh, because of uh, sort of gender sensitivities, I, I decided that I think it was the fifth verse where I say, alone, alone now in the darkness, I reflect upon the joy that gliding has provided since I was just a boy. I put a, an option of another verse there. Alone now in the darkness, so long since I was told, go off on your own now, be a glider pilot bold. Hmm. So uh, that, would, that should suit anybody. You know, it's pretty obvious from that poem as well that you've, you've had a love affair with gliding for your entire life. Oh, absolutely, yes. Since I was 14. <laughs> to tell, tell me a little bit about that. How did you first get involved in gliding? And, well, and... Um, how long have you got? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, to, to put it briefly, uh, the age of 14, I was at school and um, saw an advertisement in either flight or airplane magazine for, I think it said, competent lads wanted to help at the National Gliding Championships at Lasham. Mm-hmm. A couple of uh, school friends as well were interested, but it ended up with just me applying. And um, I filled in the papers for it, and my parents sort of kind of agreed. And off I went to Lasham. I uh, packed a sleeping bag that was um, too thin, not enough warm clothes to wear, some pocket money. And in return, I knew I was going to get some free flying. Uh, I got seven or eight launches that week, I think. Uh, f- food and a place in a tent. So off I went. Um, it was pretty unco- It was pretty bad weather some of the time. I was so frozen. I remember John Williamson, the famous John Willie. He lent me for the week his uh, sheepskin flying jacket, which actually saved me from catching a very bad chill. I think during that week, and he became a lifelong friend, John, right. John and his wife. Um, and then after about a week, my parents, who had not heard from me at all came and scooped me up and took me away. Uh, and that was probably for a couple of years. I mean, these days, people, you couldn't get away with all the regulations of a 14-year-old go off, going off like that. But um, that freedom was appreciated. It wasn't abused. And it, uh, I, it certainly contributed to my growing, growing up and the direction of my life. And, and you became an instructor, and you w- were part of the leadership at Lasham. You did all sorts of things uh, over the last couple of decades. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not a... I'm not a great, not a competition pilot, um, no, no, never have, have been, but I, I call myself kind of an explorer. I've uh, explored all sorts of places in gliders, um, uh, some of the highlights. I did best wave flying up in Scotland, mm-hmm. um, flying all over the west of England, wave and uh, exploring Dartmoor in Canada, um, various parts That's of the right, world. That's right, you flew around... Uh, uh, Toronto area, where I still fly. Yep, yep, the York Soaring Association. I was with them for a while, and including one of their moves from one airfield to another. Hmm. Um, and But Lasham has always been, well, apart from the eight years in Canada, I've always been part of Lasham, as I say, instructed there. Um, I was very fortunate having some excellent mentors and good friends, uh, Derek Piggott, uh, Lorna Ann Welsh, Frank Irving. Hmm. Um, Well-known gliding all, names, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Bill Skull, they, 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 they all sort of encouraged me and contributed to uh, what, what I did. Mm-hmm. And then when I look in a logbook, I, I said, look at some of the people I fl- who flew with me. Um, and there's some quite well-known names of more modern pilots. Right. But uh, they, didn't fly, they didn't fly with me for, for, for my instructional ability. It was simply because I was part of the Lasham team, and right. um, 
hopefully contributed in a small way, but it's um, that continuity has been um, well, the place has been a very big part of my life. Now, Bob, are you, are you still gliding? Uh, no, I uh, I packed in about five, about five years ago. Um, Latterly, I was flying the Dartmoor Gliding Society um, mm-hmm. as well as Lasham, um, and uh, I, I used to—I was probably one of the longest commuting, instruct, commuting instructors up to Lasham every few weeks. But um, then I decided to give it up completely, uh, rather than fiddle around. But then I did uh, fly uh, with the Wyvern Gliding Club, the Army at Upavon, for a year as well, mm-hmm. which was very interesting. Which is just uh, practically on my doorstep. Right. Uh, yes. Well, it, it's uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and and this poem is. Uh, may I interrupt here? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You asked me. The, 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 you said about highlights, and there's just a, a couple, a couple of things here I'd mention, if I may. Yes, absolutely, please. Ed of Minya, yeah. Looking at some of the highlights, as I said, I've, I've done some interesting, very interesting flights, very satisfying flights, and flown with some interesting people. Um, at Lasham, I. Privileged to meet Prince Philip a couple of times. Once when I was a fourteen-year-old, and once when I was um, uh, later on. No, sorry, I was once when I was sixteen, crewing for Rika Harwood, and once when I was vice chairman. Uh, I've also uh, flown with uh, Osama bin Laden's brother. Oh, Salim. really? But we won't. Uh, that's a, that is another story. That was over Cairo. Uh, many years ago, quite a coincidence, but uh, <laughs> not to be forgotten. Yeah, I would um, think yeah. yeah. And I guess what, one of my personal highlights was the um, the D-Day commemoration, the 50th anniversary, uh, which was, I think, about 21 years ago, um, where, where I organized this fly past uh, uh, from Lasham over the Solent with uh, 36 gliders and tugs, which is probably the biggest uh, civilian uh, f- formation of gliders that's ever happened. Oh, that's uh, very cool. Phil Phillips, yeah. the much-missed uh, Lasham manager who passed away a few years ago, and Alan Meredith, who, uh, when he's not instructing at Lasham, I think he flies in the Antarctic. Huh. Wow. That's, uh, those are certainly some interesting memories and projects you were involved with. Thank you. Well, Bob, I've... Well, now, now I'm, as I say, now I'm taking a greater interest in, as I get older, and my my I, my memory is still with me, and I I'm now getting more involved in sort of the history of history of gliding and uh, sharing those memories and those experiences with, with, with other people. Well, you've certainly shared a, a, a real treasure with the the gliding community by by writing this poem, and I'm 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 certain it's going to be used a, a lot moving forward, um, where because eventually we're all going to get there, so. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. I just ho- I just hope mine's not too soon. <laughs> I hope so for you too, Bob. I hope that for all of Thank us. You, right? yeah. Listen, a, a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to meet you at some point. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for your your contribution, which is a, a great interest uh, to all glider pilots, ancient and modern. <laughs> okay. You take care, Bob. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bob Peary spoke to me from his home in Urchmont, Wiltshire. Here, once again, is Bob reading his poem, Final Flight. The clouds they are dispersing, the sun is sinking west. The vario reminds me that the day has passed its best. I've soared and scraped and scud run using thermal, wave and coast. 
But now the time's arrived for me to make that last approach. My smoothest landing ever. Old familiar faces loom to guide me across the track to the hangar through the gloom. All is still and quiet while the slumbering gliders snore, but reverie is broken as they shut the hangar door. Alone now in the darkness, I reflect upon the joy that gliding has provided since I was just a boy. The dark gets even blacker as I shuffle past the fleet, avoiding fragile wingtips with my slowly chilling feet. And then I'm attracted by a piercing shaft of light which leads me through the back doors to a quite amazing sight. The sun is shining brightly. Where has the darkness gone? The cumulus is building. High time that I was gone. A gleaming bird awaits me, a whispering tug alongside. Up slack, all out, requested. Then I start my final glide. There's an angel off my wingtip who points the way we'll fly. Then we soar and climb together to that goal beyond the sky. That was Bob Peary reading his poem, Final Flight. I'll post a digital version on the Thermal's Facebook page. That's it for episode number 30 of The Thermal. I will be back again early 2022 with another show that will include the gliding scandal from the Women's World Gliding Championships that was held in Australia a few years back. We will also learn how one gliding club is successfully tackling glider pilot training and retention. I usually try to get an episode out once per month, but the last few months have been busy. My wife and I decided to drive from eastern Ontario to Vancouver Island and back. What a trip. We even stopped in Cali, Alberta, where I managed to get a flight at the annual Wave Camp. Just spectacular. And along the way, we also bought a house in the town of Invermere, British Columbia. It's famous for great soaring conditions. Needless to say, I'm glad to be changing the geographic channel and looking forward to exploring new gliding opportunities. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe and stay healthy.